book that we have spent. Uh, chapter two is a pretty powerful uh, chapter of Philippians for a number of reasons. Uh, it really gets to the heart of what the book is about. Chapter one teaches us about joy. Chapter two begins to talk to us about how we find joy in relationship. And then it, it gives us, Paul gives us this ultimate example of what healthy relationship looks like by talking about the person and the nature of Jesus. And so we're still in this great section, kind of moving on to the next chunk of the book, talking about how those who have experience, and what I'm talking about here is those of us who are in Jesus, those of us who have, to whatever degree, we are pursuing Jesus, right? Uh, maybe we're, we're really deep into the faith. We've been believers for a long time. Maybe we are just exploring it. Who knows? Wherever you are on the journey, this is addressed right now to those who have experienced the selfless, sacrificial love of Jesus. And the point of what Paul is, is kind of driving home is that for those of us who have truly experienced Jesus, at some point, gradually, over time, and I would say even growing over time, we should begin to display the same kind of selfless, sacrificial love to others as we grow in Jesus. So the point of this is, when you are made in God's image and redeemed by his Son, what should be happening over time is we are becoming more like him. This is the whole idea of the mindset of Jesus that Paul talks about. So important to remember that these are not disconnected ideas, like relationship is not a disconnected idea from joy, okay? So the, the overarching theme of Philippians is how we find joy in life. And Paul then begins to give us this list of things that actually help us to have joy in our lives. And one of the main ones, one of the main blessings that God gives us is that we are fulfilled in life through healthy relationships with other people. And if you are in a healthy relationship right now, you know this to be true. It brings joy to your heart. If you are in an unhealthy relationship, you probably know this to be true because it can rob joy from your heart. And so this teaching shows us that people by design, they were meant to live in a rich companionship with other people. And living in relationship with people like this is one of the most rewarding and challenging things we will ever do. It is going to be the greatest and hardest thing we do to have substantial, meaningful relationships with other people. This is why we as a church place such a high value on this idea. There are many things that make restoration restoration, but one of the core things that makes us a church are our five values. And one of our values is authenticity in relationship. And what that means is, we deeply believe that to follow Jesus and to find fulfillment in life, you have to understand that you cannot do that apart from other people. So a very high value in Scripture, a very high value in our church, no matter what the relationship is. Consider today's talk and the ones we've had and where we're going. Any kind of relationship this is applicable to, whether it is the relationship between husband and wife, uh, father and son, mother and daughter, brother and sister in Jesus, no matter which way the relationship goes, these truths are applicable. No matter what shape the relationship takes, God has designed us to be in healthy, stable relationships. And I'll take this even a step further. The bedrock upon which God designed healthy civilizations to flourish under is, is built on healthy relationships. So think about that. Wherever there is health in relationship amongst people, amongst government, amongst all the kind of, you know, the myriad of relationships we have with each other, there tends to be a greater chance of society and the people in it uh, flourishing. However, where there is an absence of this, there are greater levels of conflict and crime and challenge, right? So a teaching like this is important. It, it affects the very personal nature of our lives, and it also affects the, the very general nature of, our, of your lives. Uh, for example, I have had, 
I've had two cars broken into since I have been able to own a vehicle, and my father had every car we ever owned. There were three in New York. Every one of them was stolen, every single one of them. This is a great example of somebody who should listen to some selfless relationship talks, right? This has a very pointed application in how we treat each other, but it also explains a lot of uh, why the world is the way it is and the way that people treat other people, sometimes in very negative or unhealthy ways. And so a teaching like this really matters because we have always lived in And I think it's pretty fair to say right now, we live in a world with rapidly changing viewpoints on relationships. And I'll give you a good example of this. This this week, I read an interesting article in the Barna Report, which I have referenced here before. This is basically a, um, it's, it's a large organization that does a lot of research on society and culture in all areas. And in one primary area, they, they're always looking at how, how religion actually is interfacing with the world we live in. And so what I'm going to share with you now validated an, an article that I shared with you a little over three years ago. Uh, I'm going to re- reshare some of it with you to kind of put it in context. But in the, the New York Times about three years ago, there was an article written that cited some newly emerging trends regarding marriage. They were beginning to sense a shift in, in culture. And one of the biggest was people were getting uh, – they were less inclined to, to want to get married. And if they were getting married, they were pushing it off. Uh, they were basically saying we don't need to do this. And if we do do this, we can, we can really do it much, much, much later in life, if at all. And so Barna took that article – not that article in particular, but the idea in that article. And this week, they, they surfaced an interesting statistic that in our culture today, uh, marriage is no longer the new relational norm. Uh, it's no longer the relational norm. Uh, cohabitation is. The, the majority of our culture that we live in now says it is better to cohabitate before getting married and sometimes cohabitate without marriage at all. Now, the article that was written multiple years ago was a spot-on premonition written by an economics professor in Boston. And you might be thinking, how or why does an economics professor in Boston write an article about uh, physical relationships? Well, uh, the way she framed it was pretty interesting, I thought. She used the analogy of market capitalism to describe the downtick in marriage. She basically took the relationship of marriage and then married it to the way the world economy works. And she said a lot of very interesting things in the article. But the root of it really seemed to see the motivation for marriage, which, again, is a substantial relationship on earth, as a rather selfish proposition that two people pursue only when it has the potential to advantage their personal lives. And in particular, she was writing from the angle of financial stability. So this is what she wrote. This is one quote from the article. Her name will be up here so you can read it if you want to in its entirety. But this is one quote from the article describing why some modern men and women actually do choose to get married. It's fascinating. She said this. She said, women are willing to pay a higher price for marriage. Again, this is like supply and demand. And what she means here is they're more willing to get married. They will pay a greater cost in life to get married than men if they have few alternatives. So it's like, you know, you might pay $5 for a can of corn on the shelf if there's only one, but you might pay 50 cents if there are like 400. And so she's beginning to highlight the challenges of there not being men who are capable or even mature enough to marry. She says, uh, women are willing to pay a higher price for marriage, meaning they're more willing to get married than men if they have few alternatives, like when their opportunities for economic independence are restricted. So I can be better off financially in life if I get married. That's what this is saying. Consequently, An increase in the supply of women who want to marry drives the price of marriage down for men. And what this means is they don't want to get married because they have so many alternative, less options um, to choose from, meaning there's just nothing good out there. So therefore, they they don't even pursue it. In these circumstances, as the economist Shoshana Grossbart puts it, husbands can pay a low quasi-wage for domestic services. And what she's saying is, 
Listen, when there are just like there's a surplus of women out there and not a lot of men, men can essentially just not get married at all. Or if they do choose to get married, they can view it as like, I don't know, like a 2015 sale on Nissans when there's a surplus of cars on the lot. And you can just devalue uh, a woman for what she calls, I'm not joking, a quasi wage for domestic services. Now, now, listen, you probably don't need me to tell you that this is a pretty selfish way to understand uh, the rich and meaningful uh, relational value of marriage. I mean, if you've ever bought a car, just apply this to the way you courted, courted your wife. It's just pretty jacked up, right? I mean, you, you can imagine, or think about this, what a proposal would sound like between two people who are planning on getting married based on this line of reasoning. It would go maybe something like this. At least this is the way I wrote it in my Hallmark card. Now, honey, you know, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about us, and I want to say that uh, all of the market indicators are good. And it appears that if we get married, which, by the way, I need you to know, I am totally willing to waive my custodial fees for. I'm going to just let those go if you'll hook up with me. Then we're likely to increase our overall net worth. And let's be honest, honey, honey, we both know that you don't really have any other alternatives in life. There are just not a lot of men out there as great as me. So here I am, right? And I want to offer you a low quasi-wage for what I think will absolutely be your above-average domestic services to me. So all that said, let's get it done. Let's go ahead and get married, right? If somebody came to you, if you had a son and your son was talking to you about talking to a woman that way, or you had a daughter who was being courted by a man that way, that would be a problem. We would look at that and say, man, this is really uh, pretty tumultuous. This doesn't seem like the right way or a healthy way for a relationship to be built. And so in the first five minutes of this message, we've identified two significantly, or at least we're beginning to identify, two significantly different understandings of relationship in our culture. Uh, one sees relationship as something you contribute to. This is the Jesus way, right? Something that a relationship is a place where you deeply value another person. I said at the very outset of this teaching that uh, valuing others as yourself and sometimes greater than yourself, what Philippians teaches us, doesn't mean denigrating yourself. What it means is that you actually are at a place where you, you, you raise the worth of other people, right? So they now are, they're as valuable as you are. That is very different than what we're reading about here and some of the ways we've seen relationship in our culture. The other sees it as a tool to get something out of. This is a proposition based on getting something. And that's why today I want to look at what Jesus says. The true foundation of healthy relationship must be built on in order for it to honor God and fulfill us. Remember, if you want joy in relationship, there have to be some rhythms in that relationship that reflect the way God says you, you receive joy. You can't treat somebody this way and, and be joyful. Somebody's going to feel abused at some point in this relationship, which will rob you of your joy. And what I love about a teaching like this is that uh, Paul is going to reference Jesus. There's some pretty weighty statements made about who Jesus is and what he gave up. In other words, what Jesus was entitled to, he is God and deserved everything. But even though he deserved everything, he submits himself to us. He becomes our servant. He lays all that down. So these, these statements are just, they're significant. So much so that this passage in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, it's believed to be the first Christological hymn in the Christian faith. And what I mean by that is, you know, today we're singing songs, right, uh, that honor and worship God. But in the first century world, most historians believe that this section of Scripture we're reading was actually sung by God's people. This is, this is how they worship God, by highlighting the nature and the character of Jesus. This was their worship to him. And then they would leave their places of gathering trying to embody these ideas. So these truths we talk about today are not just examples. They certainly, I guess, at the very least are that. But they are truths forged in the fire of the way that Jesus lived his life. So when we say things like have this mindset, 
We're not saying do this, just do this. We're saying Jesus is this, and he did this for you and me. He, he put his money where his mouth was when it came to these truths. Every single day of his life to the point of the cross. And that's why we can confidently say by looking at Jesus' life that the foundation of a healthy relationship, of any relationship, is built on the commitment to selflessly live for another person. Paul wastes no time in this second section of Philippians too. He says this in verses 5-7. through seven. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage or to his own advantage. That is a mind blower to me. He did not use his God, his God, his, his power and authority to advantage himself. He used it for us. Rather, he says, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, here Paul tells us the foundation of a healthy relationship is built on the willingness to selflessly live for the benefit of another. Let me put it another way. Paul is saying, if, if you put this kind of in the negative sense, that any and all problems that exist in a relationship, right, have this mindset in your relationships, Paul says. Any problem that exists in a relationship, no matter what it looks like on the surface level, it will find its ultimate root in self-centeredness. It doesn't, it doesn't matter where it ends up. The root of it is always going to be in the preservation of self. And so to correct this, Paul points us to one particular example of selflessness that we are to strive for. And he's talking about the way Jesus saw his life and lived his life in, in light of it. So here we learn that although he is God, Jesus, right? Jesus is God. Although he had the right to lord over us and act and behave in ways that proved he was better than us while on earth. Which, by the way, if you look at the treatment, the people who get the harshest treatment in the New Testament from Jesus are the people who use positions of power to, to take advantage of others. It is the hyper-religious. It is the moralist. It is the legalist. It's all of these people that they, they use their lives as a platform to take advantage of other people. These are the people who catch the biggest brunt from Jesus. And we should not be surprised because he is essentially saying, if anybody could do it, if anybody could lord it over you, it was me. But I chose to use my life in service to you. He can lord over us, but he does not. He chooses to submit his life to the will of his father, and he takes on the form of a servant who lived for and loved others, us included, right, at great cost to himself. Now, since it's the 4th of July, uh, I want to share an analogy here. Uh, this is sort of connected, but connected. One of the best ways to understand this kind of selfless service that Jesus practices is by looking at the modern military in the United States, right? So, obviously, we, we celebrate July 4th tomorrow because of a declaration of independence. And after that was a pretty lengthy war um, at great cost to a lot of uh, men and women to, to preserve, to, to earn and preserve independence. And in the very outset of our nation, you can see this idea is kind of present, right? So one of the foundational principles that makes our military so efficient and effective is that there's this indoctrination training called boot camp. Those of you who have been in the military will know exactly what I'm talking about. And in this camp, depending on what branch of the military you're in, they begin to uh, drill into the heads of their recruits that they are to follow and submit to the orders of superiors at all times. There are other things that obviously go into a boot camp, but this is one of the main things. And so to those of us not in the military, this seems a bit odd, since recruits are essentially choosing of their own accord to cede a tremendous amount of control in their lives to, to another person. That's what's happening here. But in actuality, there's a clear logic in it if you are involved in, the, in a larger body called the military. Because even though the military is made up of individual recruits, officers, and higher-ranking leaders, they are all part of a much larger purpose. Uh, this is a word that we refer to as mission, right? And we have one of these in the Christian faith also. And so this means if the larger body of the military is going to 
remain unified in its service and effective in their mission. Every individual at times will need to lay down personal desires, expectations, and wants to put the needs of the larger body first. That's part of the oath you take. And in a very real way, this is part of the oath we take to Jesus. It is the continual idea that we will lay ourselves aside and pursue his causes. And so in the military context, this is why, practically speaking, soldiers have to take leaves when they're told. They don't always get to get them when they want to. Sometimes there are conflicts with the mission. They have to lay down personal issues at times. There's stuff going on in life, and they have to put that aside to be able to deal with what is in front of them. To address issues and problems, uh, that serious issues and problems sometimes, they have to lay them aside because there's a more critical issue or problem to deal with. And so self-centered behavior in the military is detrimental to the greater health of the cause. And that is why there is such a steep punishment leveled against those who disobey orders, because it can potentially hurt the greater cause of the mission. And so to a certain degree, obviously we're not in the military, but this ethos is similar in the Christian faith. To a certain degree, this is what Paul is writing about here. When he speaks of who Jesus is and what he did, he's saying the reason we should be willing to selflessly serve others in our relationships like Jesus, is so important. It's because it's one of the greatest signs that you are part of the greater body. It is one of the greatest signs that, that the cause you have committed to is actually happening. It's fleshing itself out in your life. It's one of the greatest signs that God is present and living in your life, working in your life. It means like Jesus himself, you are rejecting the desire to serve self, no matter how tempting it can be at times, to work for the greater good of the cause of God. And one of the greater goods, the direct, the end game, if you will, of the greater good of God's causes is the benefit of other people. This is why it is important to embrace this or to at least wrestle with this. It is an attitude directly, it roots in Jesus. He births it on earth and we are now called Christians because of it. We're like in a lineage of this kind of living. The baton has been passed to us until his return. And so selfless living is really nothing more than a decision that reveals you place a very high value on the worth and the needs of other people like Jesus did. The end game of Jesus' selflessness is he builds people up and he dies for those who do love him and he dies for those who do not love him. Clearly seen on the cross, right? It's, he's not partial to where the love goes. The love goes because the love is not rooted on what we do for him. It's rooted on what he has done for us. Selflessness like this in broken and imperfect ways. Please hear me. This is the foundation God intends all of our relationships to be built on. This is the, the target God wants us to strive for. And if you've read the scripture, which I hope you do, it is easy to see that God has always desired us uh, for us to be in relationships like this, where we live for the benefit of others. This, what, this didn't just happen in Jesus. It culminates in Jesus. It points to him. Everything gets to this point. So, for example, from the very outset of our lives, God created us to be in meaningful relationships with other people. And this is because there's a, there's a hard attitude, something present in who God is, that stems from the love and the desire he has to be in the presence of his son and his spirit. And so in the book of Genesis, God creates us, right? He, he fashions us in his image, and then he looks at us and he declares, hey, it's actually not good for you guys to be alone. And so before we even get to the creation of Adam and Eve, let's back up for a second. God creates humanity in his image, right? And before there is even another person on earth, he designs us to be in a meaningful relationship with him. We're here, and that means relationship exists. God says the first and the most important relationship we practice in life, it, it's because of our love for him and his love for us. He makes us to enjoy his presence and to naturally desire to want to give our lives back to him in all ways. So as we grow in our love for God, what's happening is, is we, are, we are practicing 
the healthy elements of what a relationship looks like. One that is selfless. A God who gives his all to you, and then a God who asks for us to give our all to him. Rooted in selflessness. This is a mind-blower, the fact that God invites us into a relationship like this. However, there's another interesting fact here that I think is worth stacking on this one. What is interesting to me, though, is that even though God is totally enough, we say this a lot, He is enough to satisfy our relational thirst, our every need in life. Even though He is enough, He then creates Adam for Eve and Eve for Adam. He creates the institution of marriage. Because He knew we would need the physical presence of others who loved Him in our lives, too. So even though God is enough for us, in his grace, he says, but you're going to need other people like, like you, that you can touch like this, and they will share the same burdens with you. My son will go through all of this for you, but I'm also going to put in your life people who are right next to you every day of the week, if you will permit this, and it will be there for you. And so what this relationship shows us is the very first human relationship in Scripture is one rooted in sacrificial love and service towards another Person. It begins with the relationship God has with, with people, and then it, it manifests itself in the relationship that people have with people. Both were called to give of themselves to the benefit of the other person. And in fact, if you've noticed what messed the garden up was the selfishness. There's a desire to start pursuing other things, other forms of relationship, finding stability and sufficiency in things that are less than who God is, but we believe they will fulfill us only like God can. So this, this idea, this selfless way of living, it is not a footnote in God's history. It isn't just something that happened when Jesus showed up. We could go through every chapter of the Bible, and we will find this type of attitude being displayed by God's people and then being you know, disobeyed by God's people. It goes both ways. This is a main chapter, not a footnote in the heading of God's story. And the most meaningful relationships we have in life will always require us to live more robust lifestyles of selflessness and submission for those people, for those friends, those family, our spouses, our children, those in our church family, our brothers and Jesus, and our brothers and sisters in Jesus. The most meaningful relationships require this. And I want to kind of detour here for a moment. I'm going to introduce an idea that we're going to talk about in, in its entirety next week. Uh, living selflessly for others is also something God wants us to practice for those who are in our lives who have yet to find Jesus. So right now, we've been talking a lot about the relationship that God's people have with each other. But this is not limited to just the relationship we have with each other. Jesus himself and other places in Scripture, which we'll talk about next week, uh, tells us we should be living like this for everyone, not just those who are comfortably, immediately, or naturally in our lives. The truth is, is that I don't get to just love my children because they're my children. That is a love that comes more natural, right? God also says you have to have that type of love for people that are not your children. You have to have that type of love for people that are not your spouses or your wife or your husbands, people that you just naturally love. He says this type of love has to be shown to people who are without me, for those who are far from me, from those who are considered undesirable or even unlovable by our culture and world. He says this in many places, but perhaps the most powerful one is in the great gospel parable that a good shepherd must be willing to leave the masses of the 99 uh, for the one. He talks about this idea that we've, we should be willing to leave the comfort of the flock, or in Jesus' case, think about this, he leads the safety of heaven to reach out and pursue those who are hurting and suffering. In other words, we willingly give of ourselves, we willingly sacrifice ourselves by willingly serving others. And you might be saying, well, why do we do this? Well, there is one simple answer. We'll spend our life unpacking it. But there is a simple answer for the Christian now. Why do we do this? Because Jesus first did it for us. We are in him because Jesus first did this for us. And so the key to understanding Jesus' command, his, his life and his command, 
at Paul's writing about how he lived. The key to understanding Jesus's command to, for the, to leave the 99 for the one, to rescue the one, is in a very humbling truth. And that's why we talked about humility first. It's to recognize, if you want to own this in your heart, you have to start meditating on the fact that at some point, every single one of us was the one. Like, if you're in Jesus right now, you're part of the 99. You're part of the larger body. But to truly have empathy for the one, the one who is far from God, hurting from God, whether that is a brother or a sister in Jesus or somebody very far from God, you have to remember that at one point in your life, you were the one. You were the one who somebody left the fold for to love and to care and to serve. And I'll take this a step further. At some point in our lives, in the future, we will be the one again. We might certainly be rescued and redeemed, but when life gets hard and things are challenging, God says that we are to leave. Those of us who are unstable and flat ground, we have a responsibility to leave the comfort of life to be able to care for those who are uncomfortable and disrupted. We live and survive in large part based on the desire for other people to help and to serve us. And we help others to live and survive when we practice the same rhythm. When we're a shoulder to cry on or we meet a financial need or a physical need or an emotional need or whatever the need is, God says when we leave our comfort and give of ourselves to serve another, then we are displaying the very rhythms of who Jesus is. We are living as Jesus lived for us. And that is a great evidence that he is in us. And so the key to owning this in your heart is to deeply understand that you are here, I am here, because Jesus first lived this way for you and me. And this is where the challenge or the the rub in a teaching like this exists. Most of my sermons, we could boil down to two sentences. I can give you the, the proactive way that God wants us to live and the challenge to it. But the reality of how these two statements marry in our hearts is in all the stuff I say in the middle. So what happens here now is that this is a very profound truth and to get there, there's a bridge we have to walk in life. There is a challenge in this. As God's people, we are here because we are beneficiaries of the greatest love the world has ever seen, the greatest sacrifice the world has ever seen, the greatest selflessness the world has ever seen. Because of Jesus' desire to, to lay his life down for the will of his Father, because of his robust love, we sing the song of redemption. That was, that's a free song to us, but it cost Jesus his life. And Paul writes this teaching in order for us to be encouraged by this. It reminds us how much we are loved by God, but it is also something that should challenge us in the core of our souls by reminding us to reflect on the character and the nature of who Jesus is. Who Paul tells us here, although he, he is God, he takes the form of a man and becomes our servant. I want you to think about that. God left heaven, looked like us, and existed on this earth to serve us. He had no, no need to do that, no reason to do that. But because of his love for his Father and us, he serves us. The greatest of all chooses to reveal himself in the flesh and blood by becoming the least of all. That's the story of the cross. And that is the selfless precedent that God sets and now calls us to. And this relational beauty, this is almost, where the, almost always where the challenge is. The greatness of who God is is where we find the challenge in how we become like him. This relational beauty, God loves you and serves you and cares for you. This relational beauty is where we also find the tension in our relationships, whether they are corporate or personal. And this leads me to the second truth I want to share with you this morning. The real challenge when it comes to being selfless is that it doesn't come naturally to the human heart. It doesn't come naturally to most people. Philippians 5.21 tells us this. Rather, when contrasting the fact that Jesus could have lorded over us, he says, Paul says, rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, 
And in an exclamatory way, Paul says, even death on a cross. That's the ultimate form of Jesus' humility. With a positive attitude, he goes to the cross for us. Now, if you're paying attention, the lack of selflessness can be seen in almost every area of life. And I want to reintroduce a quote I share with you from the great reformer, Protestant reformer Martin Luther, who said this. He described this deficiency, selflessness, uh, uh, excuse me, selfishness, this deficiency of the human heart like this when he said, the root of all sin, and if you know what we mean when we say sin here, sin is kind of a twofold issue. It is the cosmic fracture of who we are before God. It is the fact that God has designed us to be a certain way, and we now live at times in ways contrary to that, fundamentally, uh, but it's also the way we express ourselves. So while, while God might say honesty in relationship, honesty is the fracture the, the problem or the expression of that can express itself in a ton of ways, in robbing and stealing and being dishonest, right? This here, when we say sin, sin is a million miles deep and an eighth of an inch deep. It goes both ways. But Luther says the root of all sin is when your heart is turned in on itself, right? This is a great teaching that is in our, in our faith pedigree, the human heart turned in on itself. In Christian theology, the Christian heart is an analogy used to describe the control center of your life. It's how you make decisions, not physically the heart, but it's the idea of that, that what is at the center of your heart dictates how you live. And so what Luther is saying in this quote is that the natural inclination of the human heart, if it's left unchecked, it is almost always going to be to live for itself. I like to use this analogy. If you've ever seen somebody walk a really big dog that is out of control, it's kind of like holding a dog on a leash that is constantly dragging your life in a direction you don't want to go. It's running across the street and tripping up your legs. This is how the human heart left unchecked functions. It's constantly dragging yourself into focusing more on yourself. Essentially, the human heart is duty-bound in a code uh, that places our lives before uh, others. That's the the origin of the way that it functions. And the human heart uh, turned in on itself can certainly be seen in the sensational acts of some of the people of our world, I don't reference these a lot because I think they're almost too sensational, but we do need to mention them. You know, you can see them uh, in the evil deeds of tyrants who have without conscience taken advantage of and hurt others. You can see what just happened in Orlando, what happened overseas in Turkey, people, you know, killing themselves and trying to take innocent life with them. There is no shortage of this in our world. But I think as, as deplorable as that is, there is an even stronger case for it in the, in the everyday rhythms of the way the common man and woman reveals this hard attitude. It's not in the sensational that we see this most pointed, although that's terrible. You can see it in the little things in life. And I'll give you two very common examples of, of, of how this happens, of where, where selfishness can just be regularly observed in, in the A to Z of life. And I've joked before, I, I seem to have a lot of sermon ideas in grocery stores, but man, there is an unreal display of selfishness uh, at times in grocery stores. So in two major ways, uh, my favorite is, is what happens when you are migrating to a checkout line, especially if this is in Walmart. I wear full contact gear now when I go to Walmart because there's just no way to get out of that place without shoving people. But, but, like, you can be walking to the express lane with, like, a gallon of milk in your cart, and you will be six inches from it. And some lady or guy with, like, 48 items, this happened to me actually at Publix two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, some lady cut in front of me, and she paid with a check. In the, uh, in the express line, and she had like 50 items in her car, and she kept looking at me saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I was like, well, okay, but what, what do I do? Like, I got to sit here, I can't say anything, or be mad. But she, they rub into you and bump into you, and it's like this, this predatory thing is in their eyes when they see it. And I'm really waiting for the day where some like 85-year-old lady hits my car and says, like the Daytona 500, you know, that's rubbing his racing, son. You just have to get over this. I'm getting up in here without you. Here's another example. This past week, uh, I went with my daughter on, uh, the day before her birthday, which was yesterday, to buy a pack of hamburger buns for supper 
bar on Friday night. And I am telling you, it is the weekend of the 4th of July. We did not plan hamburgers this way. But it, the, the, the bread aisle looked like a scene from The Walking Dead. You would have thought that we were about to run out of bread and what was on the shelf was the end of it. I was reading, no joke, I was reading the tags for hamburger buns. And some guy, I mean, I was like this close to the shelf. Some guy walked right in front of me and started picking up bread off the shelf. And, and it was incredibly creepy. And I gently let him know that that was too close for comfort for me. Right. So you're in the grocery store and people, they, I mean, it, it's it's. It's crazy, but in something that silly, they just feel the right to step all over you. And perhaps driving is the, the greatest example where, uh, where this happens. So um, another good example, I, this is Friday too. I was, uh, I guess God was just throwing a bunch of suffering at me to deal with this. But for the sermon, I was, I was getting ready to turn into the BJ's parking lot off of Dunlawton. This, and I was one stoplight before. And the stoplight, I was, I don't know, a couple hundred yards from it, the stoplight turned yellow. Now, those of you with driver's license know that when a stoplight turns yellow, you do what? Speed up. See, this is the problem with our culture, right? And you you were probably the person in the car behind me. It's ridiculous. People just hit the gas and start running, right? So there is a legitimate point to do that, but I was not at that point. I was at the place where I was legitimately going to run a red light if I did it. So I did what you were supposed to do, and I hit my brakes and stopped. And as I did, I took my car out of gear because I have a manual. And there were two people behind me screaming at me, blowing their horn. And I just, I pointed up and, and pointed at the red light. Didn't do anything but point up at the red light. And then they just started screaming more. And then they were, there was a lot of, you know, finger movement and other things like that. And uh, lots of finger movement. And I had to pray. You guys know that I, I have a real challenge with anger. And I sat there and I was taking deep breaths. And I was like, God, please help me because I'm getting really angry. But this is just not worth it. It's just not worth it. But the point of this is I just stopped at a red light, Right. And and literally, I was, I think if that guy had a missile on his car, he would have blew me up. He probably would have taken me off of Dunlawton, okay? So these are small examples of everyday selflessness. And I, don't, please hear me. I'm not saying that I'm not prone to them and I don't have my own issues. But I am saying if you just open your eyes, you'll start seeing it all over the place, right? Uh, this is, these are great examples of the human heart turned in on self. Uh, it's a person who is putting their own agenda ahead of another person. And they are, in this case, they were getting frustrated at me simply because I stopped a call or I wanted to eat bread. You see, because of, because of sin, selflessness is not typically a natural human response. I am not saying there are not people who are not courteous, but I have more examples of that than I do a person who stops and says, oh, you only have one item, go in front of me. That's pretty rare. And we should also be the people who, you know, let that happen or, or encourage that to happen when we are the people with 600 items in our cart trying to pay with a check. So Luther is spot on when he says the root of all sin is bound up in a desire to serve self. For whatever reason, they got to get there quicker. They got to get in front of you. And so if we if we want to have this desire, if we want to embody this to, to live selflessly in our lives, then the scripture is clear. It comes by embracing an attitude of the heart that is critical for a healthy society to flourish. Selflessness makes the world a lot better. It makes our relationships a lot better. And it is just as critical no matter what relationship it is, society in a whole, our marriages, our friendships, our relationships and community groups, no matter what it is, it is, it is beneficial for our relationships to flourish. It is, selflessness was beneficial for our relationship with God through Jesus to flourish. And in this passage, Paul is clear. Look, if you want to know the solution to self-centeredness, it is to regularly practice serving others. It is to start living with the way Jesus did. And this is how we're going to end up today. Because if you're like me, and you hear, start living like Jesus did. You're like, sometimes I really want to start living like Jesus did. But I just have a really hard time doing that. This is where there's going to be a little hope because there is a tension here. There is the ideal and the bridge to get there. If you want your heart to start turning outward, 
the inclination to reverse from the inward, then you must know that, yes, you have to pray, and yes, you have to be in the Word, and yes, you need accountability, and yes, you need to mentally embrace the mindset of Jesus. You have to identify the problem. All of these things matter. There is an under-heaven responsibility we have. But ultimately, the true change of the human heart comes by taking that stuff and resting it in the lap of God's Holy Spirit. And this is how I want to end this talk today. Because simply put, Godly relationships do not happen apart from the Spirit of God working in our lives. You cannot have godly relationships without God. You can have relationships, but you cannot have godly or Christ-centered relationships without God or Jesus Christ in your life and the Spirit working them out in your life. So the ability to live selflessly, yes, there is a responsibility we have, but ultimately it is found in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is just not something you can fabricate. The great moralities of the Christian faith, of which this is one selflessness, cannot be fabricated. You cannot altruistically live like this, the way Jesus did, uh, without the power of the presence of Jesus. It can only be in us when God is working and not in our lives. And the hope in this is not that you have to become something you are not, especially if you know you, you struggle with selfishness. We all do at times, but if it's a real, real issue, you have to stop looking at life saying, I am not this and I don't know how to become this. You have to know that you can be selfless when God is making a reality in us that already exists in his son. The power is not in you to make it happen. The power is in the fact that God has already made it happen. And you have to rest in the great change that God can bring about your life when you submit yourself to him. Now think about this. In prior teachings, we have whole you know months of talks on the Holy Spirit. If you want to listen to that stuff, I'd encourage it. We're just going to gloss over this as we wrap up. Uh, in prior teachings, I've said the main role of the Holy Spirit is to help us grow in Jesus. He always puts the spotlight on Jesus in our lives when we forget his words, his love, his ways. One of the main ways he does this is by leading our hearts to the place where we learn to love Jesus by submitting to him. So when you're having a challenge in life uh, and something's going on, or when you are pay- impatient or anxious and God brings a verse to your mind, or you hear something like, you know, don't be anxious, but in all things pray, and you're like, oh, okay, that's a, that's a different worldview here, and get stressed out, or I can recognize that God says, don't be anxious, trust me. Or when fear comes and God says, listen, hey, uh, don't be afraid, fear is not me, power powers me, you're, you're drifting to a place that's no good. Or when you feel worthless, right, you're in life and something happens, and you, you're just really down, and, and God's like, hey, I so love the world that I gave my life for it, and, and also for you. This is the way the Holy Spirit works. He begins to direct our hearts to truth, and God is like the synopsis that connects those dots. This begins when we first give our lives to him. It begins not by decision, but by the inauguration of relationship. It begins when we commit to live for him and no longer for ourselves. And the whole Christian life is built on us learning and desiring to put Jesus, not ourselves, at the center of everything we do. We have to strive to let him sit on the throne of our hearts. John 3.30, I'll say it again, explains this truth beautifully when it says Jesus must become greater in our hearts and we must become less. And the idea behind that verse is that growth in the Christian faith means we are growing in our desire to put God first. And in doing so, we create a healthy rhythm for meaningful relationship with him. That is the foundation of the faith. Paul, though, by looking at the life of Jesus, now applies this same truth to our earthly relationships. As he says, the best way to have a healthy relationship is to make it a heart-deep priority to selflessly serve others. And he's clearly assuming that if you're going to have a healthy relationship that honors God and brings joy to your life, then you must know it is connected to the Holy Spirit-infused ability for you to serve another person like Jesus served you. 
You've got to take yourself out of the center and put Jesus there. If you want to serve the, uh, the needs of others ahead of you, you have to meditate on the way Jesus served you ahead of himself. And so this morning, I leave you with a simple question. As we move into kind of response and reflection, I want you to ask yourself, after Jesus, because he's, he's the, the guy who should be at the center, after Jesus, who is at the center of your relationships right now? Do you live to put self first over others, or do you value others as much as you do yourself? Is there something else in the middle there that I don't even know about, that you don't even know about? Is there something that you, you know, it's an item or materialism or an ad, whatever it is. Is there something that is even maybe ahead of Jesus that's not even a person? I don't, I don't know. There's no shortage of the things we can pursue as the center of our lives. But if it's not Jesus, we need to ask God for the grace and the strength to move out of that. So if you're here today realizing that it's not Jesus, if it's you or something else, then start asking God to help you live like Jesus lived for you. Because when you do that, something amazing happens you will start to live and love selflessly like Jesus. That's his promise. His promise is that if you will invest in this and submit to him and serve him and pursue him, God will bring this about in your life. The hope is in that promise. And there is no greater foundation for a relationship to be built on in our lives than that. And that's why I want to leave you with the scripture that most clearly defines what selfless love is and looks like. We'll be talking about it over these next weeks, but I pray this day and for the rest of your life, you would let it be the rudder that guides your heart. It's found in Philippians 2, 5 through, through, 2, 5 through 11. It will be behind me. Meditate on it in whatever way works for you. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. It was his lowliness that made him the highest of the land. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I pray that is what guides your heart this week. Now pray with me as we move into response time. Father in heaven, thank you for... Thank you for your son, who again, uh, not only sets the example for what you would like to see in our lives, but also gives us the power and the authority to be this. You don't just throw commands out in our lives and hope that we can figure it out on our own. You throw out these ideas, these truths, these, these life rhythms, and then you, in a very gracious way, give us yourself to flesh them out. And so I pray today that no matter where we find ourselves in this selflessness paradigm today, no matter where we find ourselves, that we would recognize we, we are met by your grace. God, if we are doing great in this area, I pray that we would have more grace to grow in it. If we are without selflessness, I pray that your grace would sustain us. May the posture of this room not be judgment, God, but it, would it be peace and hope and rest in you that you are God of selflessness who offers this to us. So God, in these next moments, I pray you would just help us to focus on you, to pray to you, to talk to you, to listen to you. And may you deal with our hearts in the way you see fit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Going to have a couple of moments of, of kind of response time.